You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. We are in Esther chapter 9 today. So Esther chapter 9. Again, page 415, one of those hardback black Bibles if you use one of those. Or if you still want an Esther scripture journal, today is the last day of the Esther series. So grab one of those before you leave today if you want to keep one with you. Or maybe you just want a new fresh copy. Grab one before you go. You're welcome to do that. As I said, today's our last sermon in the Esther series. And we titled the series, Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. Because in the book of Esther, we wanted to highlight that even though Esther is the main character, the main human character in the story, she shows remarkable courage. Even though those things are true, she is also a flawed person, just like all of us. She experienced experienced the pressure to compromise her identity in the midst of cultural pressures that were around her. And yet, even though she was ordinary in this way, an extraordinary God used her to be an agent of salvation for his people. The title here is also a reminder for us that even though God's name is not mentioned within the narrative of Esther, he is clearly at work behind the twists and the turns of the story. There will be times in your own life when you feel like God is silent where his name feels like it's not being mentioned. The book of Esther helps us to remember that God is never absent, even when he feels silent. For some of you here today, I feel like that's the message you need to hear. That's what God's spirit wants you to hear. We have a whole sermon yet to go, but for some of you, someone here, God's Spirit wants to remind you that he is never absent, even when he feels silent. I've been struck throughout the story just how beautiful and how compelling the narrative of Esther is. It's really a remarkable story. As God reverses all the dangers that were confronting his people, he shows himself to be faithful yet again within the story of Scripture. And today in our text... We're going to see a clear call to remember. God's people here, they will gain victory over their enemies at the end of the story, but that's not actually the end of the book of Esther. The narrative does not end with the victory, but with the installation of a new annual feast. And that's what we're going to read about, as if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read from verses 20 through 28 of Esther. Because this is where the author highlights what he wants us to focus on here at the end of the book. Now, when we finish reading, one of the things we do here each Sunday is I'll say just this little phrase, this is the word of the Lord. It's a reminder for us that this is God's word. And my job is just try to help us understand this. And then in response, you'll be able to say, thanks be to God in gratitude to him for giving us his word. And so... Here's what the scripture says, beginning in verse 20 of Esther chapter 9. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies 
And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the, t- at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. This is the word of the Lord. Go grab a seat. I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us, your people. Here we are again to open it. And we ask that your spirit would help us to see. Would you help us to see what we would otherwise not see if not for your spirit awakening our hearts to see your word? We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. And so here as we open the scriptures together, we ask for your help. By your spirit, would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things found here in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin by asking who here has some Christmas traditions that you like to do? Maybe you did them as you grew up. Maybe you do them now. Go ahead and raise your hand. And I'd even like for you to say some of them. So go ahead, yell them out. Don't be shy. What are some of the traditions you keep? What's that? Say that again. Crab legs. All right. There we go. Others? Advent, yeah, anticipating the coming of Jesus. Other things? The nativity, under the Christmas tree. nativity under the Christmas tree, yeah. I heard one here somewhere. Cookies. cookies. Yeah, can't forget Christmas cookies. That's good. Yeah, we have all these traditions that we keep. Some of them we just do because we love to do them together. Others of them remind us of something in particular. You mentioned the nativity set. Uh, Megan and I got this nativity set when we first got married. And at the time, it was like a wedding gift. And I thought... A nativity set? I don't know if I want a nativity set for my wedding. I wanted like a mixer or, you know, something cooler, like manly. I don't know. Video game. I don't know. Mixer's not very manly, right? But we got a nativity set. But now, putting out that nativity set is one of the favorite parts of our Christmas each year. And it reminds us of the scene in the context of Jesus' birth. We have these traditions, some just to celebrate with others, in, just with people we love, and others to remind us of something. 
And it's good to ask why when we think about the traditions we inherit. Even when we think about Christmas, Christians and non-Christians alike celebrate Christmas. We get together, we share gifts, we enjoy food, we spend time together, and we might even ask why. Why do we do that? If we never ask why, then what we have inherited will start to seem unnecessary, even foolish at times. Why go to that Christmas celebration? Especially if you don't want to eat Aunt Marge's casserole again. Or receive a gift from someone that you don't know if you'll even enjoy that year. Or spend time maybe in awkward conversations with people that you only get to see once a year. And you might start to ask yourself, why am I going? If, if not asking why, maybe you won't ask that question and you'll just stop going. You'll buy yourself a gift because you know what you want. You'll make yourself food because you know what you'll want to eat. And before you know it, we've lost the point altogether And you find yourself alone, untethered, having missed the entire point. The English novelist G.K. Chesterton once wrote, Don't ever take a fence down until you know the reason it was put up. Chesterton was confronting those who discard something without ever knowing why it was put there to begin with. And that's one of the reasons why the book of Esther is written to explain why the festival of Purim was celebrated among God's people. If the festival of Purim was a fence in Chesterton's analogy, the book of Esther is the answer to the reason why it was put up to begin with. And more than anything else, the book of Esther was an invitation to remember. In particular, to remember the time that God was faithful and saved his people from the evil plans of a man named Haman. And even for us today, in general, it is an invitation to remember all the times that God has been and continues to be faithful. The primary message of the sermon is this. We must take active steps to remember God's faithfulness. Because we are so prone to forget. Here's what I know. You don't have to consciously reject God to forget him. Without active steps of remembrance, we are so prone to neglect him and to forget his faithfulness. And so our sermon is really just three points, three aspects of remembering. The first, we'll talk about how we remember. Second, why we remember. And third, what we remember. First, how we remember. The conclusion here to the book of Esther, as I said, is not the victory that happens, but the call to remembrance. And the initial celebration of Purim was spontaneous in verse 19, right before where I started to read. The Jews had feasting and gladness because of the victory they had over their enemies. The beginning of chapter 9 shows that the victory of the Jews over their enemies was complete. Now, keep in mind, this was not just a random killing of those around them. It was a defense against those who hated them and intended to do them harm. And not only was their victory over their enemies in Susa, but also all throughout the kingdom and all of Haman's family as well. The victory is meant to be seen here as comprehensive and complete. And three times the author tells us that the Jews did not plunder their goods. The goal was not personal wealth but salvation for God's people. In response to this victory, spontaneous celebration happens in verse 19. And what began spontaneously 
then became an annual festival called Purim. Some Jews might have grown up wondering, why do they celebrate this feast each spring? Why do we do this? And so the book of Esther was written to provide an answer. And this is a common practice for us. It's a common use for stories. And there's something in literature called pourquoi stories or just so stories. And they're written to tell the origin or the etiology of something in the world. Sometimes they're fiction and sometimes they're based on real historical events. And we do this as a culture. Think about the 4th of July. We have all sorts of historical stories that we tell about how we won our freedom as a nation. Another freedom celebration is Juneteenth. It is a federal holiday celebrated on June 19th to commemorate the end of slavery. But why is it celebrated on June 19th? Why not April 9th when the Civil War ended or January 1st when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued? Why is it celebrated on June 19th? Well, there's a story about how on June 19th, 1865, over two months after the Civil War ended, Major General Gordon Granger ordered the final enforcement of the Emancipation Proclamation in Texas. And then what began as an annual celebration in Texas, Texas spread among other black communities and is now a federal holiday to commemorate the end of slavery. The book of Esther is written to give God's people the story behind the annual celebration of Purim. And Purim involved active steps of remembrance. In verse 42, Mordecai lays out what those would be. Purim was to be a day of feasting and of gladness, where they would send gifts to one another and gifts to the poor. In order to call to mind that God had turned their sorrow into gladness, what was mourning into a holiday, they should have a feast is what they decided. One of the reasons they sent gifts to one another, and in particular to those who were poor, is to ensure that everyone within the community could participate on this feast day. And this celebration was so significant among God's people, it's actually still celebrated today, thousands of years later. I read an article by a New York City news outlet from earlier this year explaining how modern-day Jews celebrate Purim. And the president of the New York Board of Rabbis explained that there are four primary observances to the holiday still today. The first is that the book of Esther is read. The second is to give charity to at least two people in need. Third, to share food with at least one friend. And fourth, to partake in a festive meal. A cantor at a New York City synagogue said of Purim, He said, there is rarely, if ever, a day filled with more joy, happiness, and sincere celebration, more so than Purim. And you can see how Mordecai's initial instructions in verse 22 are still reflected in modern Purim celebrations. And as those who have been adopted into this story through the blood of Jesus, this is our heritage as well. Because like God interceded through Esther to save his people throughout the Persian Empire, we also needed God to intercede on our behalf through Jesus. And today, we are called to take active steps to remember. Like the Jews did with Purim, we do it together as well in community as we tell the stories of God's faithfulness through his word as we gather for a meal at the Lord's Supper. 
And one of the best ways to remember is to do it with others who love God and want to remember him with you. That's what we see here. Mordecai saying, do this together. Feast with others. It's good. God calls us to do it alongside others. Author Tish Harrison Warren wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. And in throughout this book, she helps us to see how so many of the different parts of life can be opportunities to remember. And in one particular chapter, she's reflecting on how deeply wounded she was by a church leader in a position of power. What had been a place of refuge for her became a place of rejection and condemnation. Seeing the dysfunction and the brokenness, she grew cynical, she grew guarded, tempted to give up on the church altogether. But she went on to write, and this is a good reminder for us. She said, where else could I go? The church was where I heard the gospel in community, where I received nourishment in word and sacrament, where I touched the body of Christ, where I was shaped and formed as one beloved by God. So we returned to church. I received the word and sacrament, most often with tears, among people I was no longer sure I could trust. The church itself nursed us slowly and patiently back to health. Brothers and sisters, our co-communicants, met us in our pain, spoke words of life and hope over us, and dared us to trust again. Warren recognized that the place where God has invited his people to remember is together. So even through her pain, she dared to trust again. And it was the beautiful and broken bride of Christ that nursed her back to health through the simple act of lovingly remembering God's faithfulness together. Remembering requires us to lovingly, intentionally, actively take steps to recall the story of God's faithfulness. That happens when we gather together on a Sunday, when you participate in family worship around the dinner table, or when you sit with a friend and cry with them at the pain of their life. There are many more ways I could list, but one of the calls for us is to take an active step to remember God's faithfulness. At Purim, they did it in community with gladness and over a meal. And those are some pretty good ways for us to remember together as well. The second aspect this morning of remembering is why we remember. And the answer just briefly is because of how quickly we forget. In verse 27, it says that the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who would join them to keep the festival of Purim, which means they made a commitment to remember together. Because, in verse 28, they did not want the days of Purim to fall into disuse or the commemoration of these days to cease. They did not want the memory of what had happened to be forgotten among God's people. And so we take active steps to remember because we so quickly forget. The entire experience within the book of Esther was an identity-clarifying moment for God's people. Because in exile, it is tempting and difficult for them to maintain their identity as God's people. Yoram Hazani wrote this. It was only after the dispersal throughout Babylonia and Persia that an individual born as a Jew found himself in immediate, constant, and personal contact with other possible identities and had to choose for himself whether Jewishness would be something he would maintain or something he would hide. 
Hazani is a Princeton-educated Jewish Bible scholar, and he observed how this was a unique and unprecedented moment within Jewish history. It was one of the first times when someone could choose to reject their Jewish heritage, especially those who remained in Susa. Eighty years earlier, the first Jews returned to Jerusalem, but yet those in Susa had this temptation to assimilate to the broader culture that was around them in a very intense way. In many ways... That is what Esther had done when we meet her at the beginning of this book. From what we can tell, she had assimilated into Persian culture, and she had left behind many parts of her Jewish identity until Mordecai appeals to her to make a decision. Was she going to embrace her Jewish identity or her Persian one? And when she appealed to the king to save her people, it was an act of choosing her Jewish identity. And here at Purim, her decision is mirrored by all the Jews in Persia. They were on the verge of being massacred, which served to remind them of who they are. It was an identity-clarifying moment for them. Hazani points out that many had started to assimilate into the Persian community, but that this moment forced them to see and to recognize who they were. And in response to God's salvation, they once again recommitted themselves to him. For us today, there is a parallel here with our own identity and our own pressure of assimilation into our cultural moment. We are not in physical exile like the people of Persia, but we are in spiritual exile. This is not our home. And like the Jews, we can start to get our identity from the culture around us, more so than the identity that we've received from God. Every day, we're inundated with messages, ways of thinking that run counter to God's story of the world. For example, we are told that our value is based on what we accomplish. Or that if we don't make that purchase, we're going to be lacking in some way. Or we are told to liberate our sexual impulses and that moral and sexual decisions won't have much consequence. So don't worry about them so much. The reason we take time to remember is because our acts of remembrance remind us of our identity. They are a way of rebelling against our tendency to assimilate. Trevin Wax, in his book, Rethink Yourself, argues that we get our identity from one of three places. We will look around, inside, or up. When we look around us, we look to our communities, to our families, to our traditions, to define our identity. And this was more common in early Western history and still in parts of the world today, where we take our identity primarily from our tribe, from our people, from our heritage. And there's a heavy emphasis here on the heritage we receive from our family. A second way that Wax outlines is that we can look inside of ourselves. And this is a very modern and Western way of forming our identity, where we reject the identity that we receive from our community, we look inside of ourselves to discover who we are and what we want to do with our lives, and then we ask the people around us to support that version of ourselves. At the time of Esther, it was far more common for people to have an identity that was shaped by those around them, the first one I mentioned from Trevin Wax, by their communities and by their families. However, as Hazani pointed out, there's this new paradigm that's starting to emerge in which people had the option to choose a new identity and reject the one that they had inherited. 
In many ways, we do need the ability as humans to have a personal identity that is distinct from our communities because we need a way to interrogate what we inherit. Not everything from our tribes and communities and families, everything that gets passed down, not everything's good necessarily. The impulse toward individualization and prophetic self-critique grew even stronger in the West. And it happened because of our Christian heritage, which encouraged us to see ourselves as distinct people who were willing to critique our own communities. I mentioned Juneteenth earlier. That is a day of remembering to both celebrate the end of slavery and also to grieve the fact that it happened at all. Some days of remembrance commemorate a willingness toward self-critique. But the problem with looking inside is that it can make or it can be as limited as just looking around us. It can often come from a place of pride, assuming that we know better. It puts an overconfidence in us and we can see how that erodes our identities and our society we're experiencing even now. We have a tendency toward rejecting everything that we inherit, and that can be equally as destructive as adopting everything that we inherit. G.K. Chesterton in Orthodoxy wrote, tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking around. Chesterton is arguing that when we become so prone to reject tradition, we make an oligarchy out of people who are walking around. They rule like tyrants over those who have gone before simply because they're still alive. And on the other hand, if we just accept tradition devoid of any self-critique, then we make an oligarchy of the past. If looking around us doesn't work and looking inside of us doesn't work, then how do we form our identity? This is where Trevin Wax suggests that we look up. We first ask ourselves what God has to say about who we are. Looking up lets us see God's design and allows him to determine our identity as people created in his image. The primary reason we actively remember God's faithfulness is because we need him to tell us who we are and how we worship him. And one of the best ways to look up is to hear, to hear from our transcendent God is to hear from him through the Bible. And when I mention this, I'm not just talking about becoming guilt-ridden and enslaved to a new Bible reading plan. What I'm saying is that the purpose of Bible reading is that we learn from God who we are, who he is, and what he says about the world. The Bible is one of the primary ways that we remember. It is through the Bible we hear the stories of God's faithfulness, where we see his character revealed. We remember because we're so prone to forget. So we take active steps in community with others and through God's word. We give him the final say in defining who we are. Because looking inside and looking around are not sufficient. We need to look up. The third aspect of remembering is to ask what we remember. If we're going to take all this time to remember, then we should ask ourselves what it is that we're trying to remember. And the primary answer is God's faithfulness. In verses 24 through 26, the author of Esther gives a short summary of the story of Esther. 
And in a, in a book, Esther is about 5,000 words long. The summary is about only about 100 words long. We should clue in to what they felt like was important enough to give us as a summary. And that is that Haman, the enemy of the Jews, plotted to kill them by casting purr. But when the king learned of the plot, he gave orders that this evil plan should return on his head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. And then in verse 26, he concludes, therefore, they call these days Purim after the term Pur. The Jews are being called to remembrance through the festival of Pur. And I'd like to argue that God's faithfulness leads them to remember two things in particular through the festival. Who they are, identity that we were just talking about, and whose they are. In who they are, we see here that this is a call to remember their identity. In verse 24, the author reminds us who Haman is, an Agagite, an enemy of the Jews who plotted to destroy them. And if you remember from earlier in the series, the Agagites were also known as the Amalekites, which was an ancient enemy of the Jewish people. And it tells us in Deuteronomy 25 how the Amalekites attacked Israel from behind while they were in the wilderness. They killed those who fell behind, the women, children, injured and ill. And so Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy that one day God would blot them out of the face of the earth through the Israelites. The passage in Deuteronomy has been often read before the book of Esther on the day of Purim to help them remember that Haman was an ancient enemy who intended great evil against the Jews whom God overcame. Purim was a festival that crystallized their identity as God's people. It was an act of remembering who they were. The second thing they remembered is whose they were. In the book of Esther, it is easy to think that Esther is the main character, and from a human perspective, she is. But ultimately, the main character of the story is God himself. Even though his name is not mentioned directly, it is clear that his providence is being highlighted. And providence can kind of be a big word, but it just simply means God's intentional and purposeful rule over his creation. The way the book of Esther is constructed, we can see that God is in control. He is present throughout the narrative, just not mentioned by name. It is seen most clearly in the contrast between Haman's plan and the end result. In particular, the way that he cast purr or lots. Today we might think of it as rolling dice. Haman cast purr to determine the day on which the Jews would be killed. But that day turned out to be a day of great victory for the Jews. As it says in verse 25, his plan was turned on his head. The evil he planned against others fell upon him and his sons, which is an expression of God fulfilling what was written generations earlier in Deuteronomy. God might be slow in fulfilling his promise, as we regard slow, but his timing is perfect. The name for the festival is a reminder of God's providence. Purim is based on the time or based on the name for the dice that Haman threw. It is a reminder that what Haman meant for evil, God turned for good. Purim is a day to remember that God is in control. He is sovereign and he will remain faithful to his promise. As much as it was a reminder of who the Jews were, it was an act of remembering whose they were. And so when we ask what we remember, it's a combination of these same two things, who we are and whose we are. In many ways, Purim is not just about us remembering, 
It is a celebration of God remembering his promise to his people. God remembered his own faithfulness to his people. The Jews are in exile here because they had rejected him. They had forgotten who they were and whose they were. And in this moment of great need, God remembered his own covenant faithfulness. We remember because God remembered us. Now, we don't practice Purim as a Christian community today, even though we could. But the command is not binding us on us in the same way. So the most direct application for us is simply this call to remember, to actively remember God's faithfulness. And this call is repeated then several times in the New Testament, a call to remember. In the New Testament, though, it is, it is a call to remember Jesus, who came to fulfill the greatest act of God's faithfulness. We remember because God remembered us in Christ. In 2 Timothy 2.8, for example, Paul is writing and he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Paul here, he's writing to this young church leader named Timothy. He's giving Timothy instructions on how to pastor and shepherd God's people. And here's what he says. Remember, remember Jesus. In 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 9, we get kind of the opposite side of this. We get a warning that not remembering or forgetting is a danger to our soul. Peter writes that those who lack godliness are so nearsighted that they are blind, having forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. We must take active steps to remember God's faithfulness because we're so prone to forget. And Peter is warning us about our tendency to forget here. Two things happen when we forget that we have been cleansed from our former sins. The first is what Peter is appealing to in his letter. If we forget that we are clean and our former way of living doesn't fit us anymore, then we will be prone to go back to the idols and to the practices that enslaved us before Christ. We have been set free. We are made clean in Christ. The second danger is that we forget that Jesus cleansed us. So we will start to try and cleanse ourselves. We can try to make ourselves clean enough to be loved by God or clean enough for God to keep loving us. Forgetting that Jesus has made us absolutely pure. You cannot get any cleaner than what Jesus has already done in you. Dear saint, if you are in Christ, then you are clean. You have been cleansed. The reality is that there is even a danger of turning our acts of remembrance into a new legalism, as if the festivals will make us clean. We need to be reminded, no, the festivals don't make us clean. Jesus makes us clean. The festivals, these acts of remembrance, are intended to remind us of that reality. So when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, that was the point. To remember. Jesus said that when we take the bread, which is a picture of his body, we do it in remembrance of him. He said that when we drink the cup, which is the blood of the new covenant, we do it in remembrance of him. In the same way that Purim was instituted as an act of remembering God's faithfulness in Esther, the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus as an act of remembering God's faithfulness on the cross. Which is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we do 
when we take communion. God has given us a way to actively remember Jesus. And communion is one of the most significant ways we do that together each week. So I want to encourage you, as we take communion here in just a moment, be intentional. It is an active step of remembering God's faithfulness to us in Jesus. That we have been cleansed from our former sins. And so as we bring our Esther series to a close, our focus here at the end is what the author of Esther has focused on. The institution of a new festival, the festival of Purim, where God's people remembered together of his faithfulness. For us today, it is a call to be intentional in how we remember Jesus together. We must take active steps to remember God's faithfulness in Christ because we are so prone to forget. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.